Hi, John Dixon here. If you're listening to this, then you are one of our amazing Undeceivers. This is bonus content available exclusively to Undeceptions Plus subscribers. American pastor and theologian Tim Keller is one of the great Undeceivers of the 21st century. And I was thrilled that despite some of the challenges Tim is facing at the moment, he said yes to what ended up being a rather long interview. And I'm even more thrilled that you guys will get to hear all of that stuff, uncut right now. I hope you get a lot out of it. I sure did. Hi, John. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I am glad to be with you. So, Tim, you began your ministry in a small town at a time when America was often described as a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. And what hindrances to genuine Christian faith did you encounter in that context? Well, in that context, and and I was also in a, in a southern town, so the way uh, America works is the south, the southeast, is the most um, conservative part of the country. It was really the, uh, I'd have to say, the hindrances of genuine Christian faith were moralism. In other words, mm-hmm. an understanding of Christianity as being um, uh, a matter of a, following moral codes, going to church all the time, um, being very, or even even being sold out for Jesus. And uh, it was very, very clear when you talked to the people, they were very, uh, very much in a, a an evangelical Christian culture. Um, mm. <clears throat> and um, uh, they, and yet at the same time, it was also very clear there wasn't much actual spiritual vitality at all. So it was a moralism. Uh, also, it was deeply enculturated. So to be a Christian was to be uh, a flag-waving American. Uh, it was very God and country. The other thing, as I would say, it was, even though it was a very blue-collar town, the town I was in, only 5% of the um, uh, high school graduates of, the, of uh, Hopewell High School went on and went to university or college, only 5%. So. Uh, it, there was also an anti-intellectualism about the place so that you, uh, people, people's understanding of the Bible was very common sense. In other words, mm-hmm. if, it's, if the Bible says this is very clear, it just says that, therefore, don't tell me that there's some other way of reading it. So it really wasn't, it, 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 you might say, frankly, uh, moralistic fundamentalism was the real uh, barrier to a vital Christianity. It might surprise some to think that that was a hindrance, um, but I, it makes it makes sense. Was it was it very different? Um, you know, over the next decades in New York, were the was the skepticism you faced way more sophisticated, which would be the cliche, of course, or was it the same, just dressed up differently? Well, John, it was in a way. Um, the way your question is phrased, I almost have to say yes and no. Because on the one hand, it was very, it was very different. It was very more sophisticated. It was secularism. Okay. And you said, well, that's totally different than fundamentalism. But as you, you, maybe you know what I'm going to do here is there definitely is a a secular fundamentalism. It's, um, uh, first of all, it's moralistic. It's like if you're, if you are, you're not bigoted and you uh, care about the poor and you vote for the the proper enlightened um, political movements, then you're all right. 
Um, so there's a moralism against, you know, we're the enlightened ones, you're the bigoted ones. I'd even go as far as say there's a kind of anti-intellectualism, which sounds really strange. I mean, my, my church in New York, uh, at one point we did a survey and we had something like uh, 2,000 people coming. And I discovered that 15% of the people either had doctorates or were working on them. And when I thought, oh, wow, well, it, that actually was very, very typical of, of center city Manhattan. And in spite of all that, there definitely is an anti-intellectualism. There's no, um, the, uh, they don't, well, there's, there was a cancel culture in New York City a long time before it became, before it got a name, <laughs> where if you just didn't have the right views, you were just shut out period. So oddly enough, and oh, by the way, don't forget the, uh, you know, the, the new, the new atheists, you know, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and those folks, they came out uh, 15, 20 years ago, almost 15 years ago, I guess. And boy, they, e even a lot of secular people called them secular fundamentalists hmm. because of their combativeness and their anger and their unwillingness to be, to speak civilly. So there's a sense in which it was very different. Um, the objections to Christianity were different, but on the other hand, there really is a, there really is a kind of fundamentalism of, of the, the secular left. Hmm. I'm interested in Jonathan Haidt's, um, observation based on the psychological literature that high IQ and high levels of education, which you must've come across in Manhattan a lot, um, actually don't predict any better access to true beliefs, but do predict greater capacity to rationalize one's existing beliefs. Um, can I ask you, what, what role do you think intelligence and education play in people's engagement with Christian faith, positively or negatively? Well, it's true in a place like Hopewell, Virginia, which is the small town I we were talking about to start with. Um, it's an anti-elitist, anti-intellectual. It was a blue-collar community in which people didn't trust the elites. They trusted their friends, their neighbors. And um, there was a kind of, um, let's just say a confirmation, by strong confirmation bias. They didn't, don't bother me with books or scholarship. You know, my friends say this, and that's just the way it is. Hmm. Well, the same thing actually happened in a place like, I mean, this is where John Hyde, who I do know somewhat actually, uh, a remarkable guy, by the way, you know, secular Jewish guy, but boy, does he understand, I think, religion better than an awful lot of religious people. And he, what he would say is because so many secular people say, well, we, we actually inhabit the heights of culture. You know, we're in charge of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Hollywood. And by the way, they are. And so that's where they get their confirmation bias. We don't have to think about it. Hmm. Because we 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 uh, occupy the heights of culture, and so in that sense, yes, uh, absolutely, they can rationalize their uh, skepticism because they say, "Well, look at all these smart people, and look at you know, look at all the best universities believe what we believe." And you know, oddly enough, that's really not that different than my blue collar people in Hopewell saying, "Oh, don't tell me what the scientists tell me." you know, about vaccines, for example, don't tell me what the scientists tell me. All I know is that uncle Joe says that there, it's just a, it's just a, you know, it's a con and that's mm -hmm. it. 
Mm -hmm. I don't really see that as a whole lot different than saying, well, everybody at, you know, the entire sociology department at Harvard says this. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, it's not logos only it's ethos as well right it's it's the degree to which we trust the credibility of our peers that determines what we believe absolutely and and uh yeah john john height does not have any illusions about uh you know secular and liberal people necessarily being more open than mm. conservative people even though i'm actually there's there's a very weird um uh kind of loose uh, when i say loose meaning no nobody no Everybody has never shows up every week, but there's a, a, a Zoom call I'm on of it was deliberately pulled together believers and non-believers who respect each other and who get together and talk about what's going on in the culture. And when John shows up, um, interestingly enough, he's actually he, he sees almost all the same thing believers see and, and is bothered about about progressive culture, even though he himself just can't, you know, he's very kind. To religious people and even have a lot of respect for them but just can't believe interesting yeah yeah you've said in various places tim that you're not wholly convinced by the secularism hypothesis so i want to ask you you know as you've watched the west in the last five years especially the us in the last five years are you still skeptical that we're tracking inevitably away from religion well okay uh europe then Canada and Australia than the U.S. So you might say the you know the Western world, in that order, seemed like Europe went very secular. People just left the church. Uh, Canada and Australia lagged a bit, but they were ahead of the United States. And even ten years ago, I think most people are saying maybe fifteen years ago for sure that the United States was very different. That Australia, Canada, Europe was going secular, but America it's strong and and you know, evangelicalism actually grew to almost 29. I know it's hard to believe in Australia, but probably there was a growth there that went on from about the 70s to the 90s. And, and at least people who identified as born again evangelicals were something like 30 percent of the population, which is just hard to imagine as, as late as like 1990, 95, something like that. But then, of course, we seem like we have started to go the way of all not the way of all flesh, but the way of all West flesh. Hmm. Um, but here's he, here's my my thoughts is um, give you three or four or five reasons why I just don't believe it just continues to go down and down and down, even though I, four or five. Re well, one reason is um, that, as you know, in the non-white and the non-Western world, Christianity has grown quite a bit. Um, and I do believe that the future of evangelical Christianity is that, that, that increasingly the leaders and the theologians will be non-Western and non-white. It's going to take a long time. It just does. You know that it, it, it takes time for there to be the same kind of, you know, to produce the same kind of theologians and so on. But what that's going to do is it's going to create a credibility for evangelicalism that it doesn't have right now. Uh, Number two, I do think, and I you mean, <laughs> I guess this is going out and somebody's going to crucify us both, but uh, the fact is Australia, Canada, United States, and Europe are going to be increasingly non-white because our fertility rates, the white people's fertility rates goes down. 
And the fact is that non-white people are less individualistic. They're less secular. They're more community minded. They're more open to religion. And there we go. Uh, thirdly, I would say that secularism, uh, I believe what Ross Douthat, you know, he's a, he's a Catholic mm. guy, bit of a friend of mine. I wish I knew him better. He's just too busy to get to know well, but writes for the New York times. He would say, secularism is half um exhausted that the 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 um there's part of secularism that says uh the, the relativism of secularism the anti-science uh, the anti-supernatural the anti-spiritual the old-fashioned hard secularism to some degree is dying off in spite of dawkins and hitchens and people like that i would say john 30 years ago, if after um, a, a, a church service, or 40 years ago after church service, I said, I'm going to meet people down, down front. Anybody wants to ask me questions? I get a lot of questions about how could there be miracles? Hasn't science disproved that? And that th those issues started going away. Younger people are not quite as, um, they're not quite as secular in that sense. They're not, they, hmm. they're more open to the spiritual. They're more open. They're not as uh, uh, they're not as rationalistic. We know that they just aren't. On the other hand, you might say the secular self, the idea of a completely emancipated identity self that ha I have the right to define my own reality and my own morality. That's still very very strong. And even though it looks like it's destroying our community, it's destroying, <laughs> it's undermining the family, it's making people incredibly lonely. Uh, Ross doubt that I think he's right saying that that you might call it the modern self is still very, very, very strong. It's seductive. Uh, I can be whoever I want to be. I want to live any way I want to live. And even though it's really harming us, it's still pretty strong. So there, there's a there's a certain amount of exhaustion with secularism. And yet I, it's not dying. And yet I wonder about its long-term ability to really serve the human race. So that's, that maybe that's enough for now. I mean, it's, <laughs> I think the limitations of secularism, the demographics of both secularism and the West, um, the inevitable multi-ethnic future of, of uh, the leadership of the evangelical church, all these things I think bode fairly well. Yeah. I also sometimes wonder... Um, I know this is a, a theme close to your heart, whether China might be might be the dark horse here. Yeah. Given given that everyone says the next century is China's, but that might also mean it's Christianity's. Yes. Well, now, given you know, growth. if 10% of the population is Christ, evangelical Christian, for example, you realize that that's the population like of the United States or something like that. I mean, and it's way more than yeah. Australia. Um, uh -huh. And, and of course, some of you know, I guess you know that when I was 10 years ago or so when I was visiting uh, China, you know, uh, before the current regime, there was a little more openness to Christianity mm -hmm. in China. There was a period there where it looked like uh, there was going to be more openness. Now, of course, things are shut down and I'm it, it, it's just not as easy to get in or talk to people mm -hmm. or do conferences. But when I was there, there was a lot of a sense that Chinese Christians had that they were important to the future of Christianity. As some of you know, the Back to Jerusalem movement, they felt like they're the mm -hmm. ones to bring Christianity to the Middle East, not yeah. white people. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, as some, you know, 
it's possible that 40%, somebody said by 2060, 40% of the world's population might be in Africa. And whereas North America and Australia is probably going to be more affected by Asian Christians. Yeah. Whereas I think that Europe is going to be more affected by African Christians. Hmm. And I do think, but so I do think that non-Western, non-white Christians are very important to the future. And I do think the Chinese are probably in better position, partly because they, um, there's more education. There's I, Africa, Africa as a continent has so many social problems still. Hmm. And I do think the rest of the world needs to help the continent with it but it also means i think the church is less well resourced and in spite of the persecution i think the chinese church has got a lot of assets there so i agree with you totally you mentioned a moment ago that some of the questions are changing the sorts of yeah. questions that they ask you at the front of church do you think the classical intellectual questions like the existence of god the reliability of the bible etc have any currency amongst doubting folks today or have these really faded to the background uh neither they've just gone um they're not primary uh, they're secondary now. So one of the things I found interesting was more and more I'm, I'm booting my evangelism and apologetics off of Pascal's famous Ponsay, where he says, first show people that Christianity is rationally respectable. You know, it's, 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 it's reasonable. That's all. Number one. Number two, get them to want it to be true. In other words, that means show its personal offers, the things that it can do. And then finally, he says, and then show them that it is true. So I, I have found that, for example, the, the first layer, and I'll give you a couple examples of why this works. The first layer I try to, do, I try to work with is uh, leveling the playing field. So I want to get a non-believer off this idea that um, I've got faith and he or she doesn't. I want to say you do realize that um, everybody basically has a view of the world based on uh, a set of assumptions that you can't prove. Therefore, in a sense, all knowledge starts with faith. But I said that doesn't mean that you can't rationally weigh the different worldviews and say which ones are more consistent, which ones within within themselves, which ones actually explain the world the way we we see it, which ones are best even at being livable. They say you can't prove a worldview. Therefore, you might say the burden of proof is kind of equal on every, nobody can prove it. And yet at the same time, you can weigh them. So I start that way. And even I get a lot of, especially from some guys, and I mean guys, a lot of young white men really just don't believe that they, they believe they're totally objective and absolutely rational and so on. And I, I actually, if I point them to Alistair, McIntyre's book, uh, Who's Justice, Which Rationality, Their Head Starts to Hurt. Uh, <laughs> they say, so, you, so did mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, which rationality? And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, so well, there are more one. But anyway, you, so you level the playing field. Then rather than go, most people aren't immediately, I think, as uh, ready. Their eyes glaze over if you really go in to too much and both you and i have written a lot of these books okay brother but uh if you just go too much into the proofs of god or uh even the evidence for the resurrection things like that they're just not there the real question mm -hmm. is why would i want this thing to be true mm -hmm. uh they very often have a very poor understanding of what christianity actually offers 
And so there, I guess you might call it existential or con or uh, apologetics where you're saying, okay, well, how do you get meaning in life? Here's what Christianity does. How do you get an identity? Here's what Christianity does. How do you face suffering? Here's what, here's how Christianity helps. Yeah. Um, and, and then if eventually they get to the place where they say, huh, this is actually pretty nice, but I mean, how do I know it's true? Finally, they're motivated. And then actually, even if they don't want a little bit of a rehearsal of the evidence, they ought to get it because yeah. they're going to have bad time. Even if somebody says, I want to be a Christian, I think you do have to rehearse the fact that there's not proofs, but pretty strong evidence. Uh, now, th th behind all this, John, is interesting. I was reading, rereading uh, Molly Worthen wrote a book called Apostles of Reason. It's a a very critical look at evangelicalism in the United States. She's a professor of religion, I think, at uh, University of North Carolina uh, and very critical of evangelicals. But what she, interestingly enough, she said, um, she said, amidst all the bluster and the culture war, she doesn't like Francis Schaeffer. She didn't like, she doesn't like, um, but she doesn't like uh, popular evangelical apologetics at all. But she says, you know, over the last 60 years is these two guys, which is Alvin Plantinga and um, Nicholas Wolderstorff. And he says, they, with, and he says, most evangelicals, I've never heard of them. He said, he said, they, over about a 50 or 60 year period, he said, they, they, he, this is how she said it. They created a modest, but absolutely intellectually impervious, uh, uh, rationale for why it's very reasonable to be a Christian. Hmm. He said, he, he said they, they handled everything from Hegel to biblical criticism and showed n there really are no uh, decisive objections to the reasonableness of Christianity. And she said, instead of trying to, you know, slam dunk and say, ha, see, I've proven it. They went, they were modest. That That's what I call that level of the playing field. They're very modest. There's really yeah. no reason why a reasonable person, a very reasonable person can't be a Christian. Hmm. And she says, uh, they did that. And she says, also, they took non-Christians seriously. They didn't just write them off and they engaged with them. And they, and then they wrote, you know, Nick Wolderstorff, of course, wrote books about how did I overcome grief and how did I, you know, his, one of his son, his sons yeah. died and, hmm. and that stuff. And she says, you know, they're just ignored by evangelicals when actually for a person like Molly, who I don't know, but seems to be a very, very smart skeptic. She finds them by far the most compelling uh, presentation of Christianity. I mean, she mm -hmm. looks at them and says, I could be a Christian like that, even though for whatever reason, God, the Holy Spirit hasn't worked on her. So I would say uh, what they do is they, they're very modest about trying not to prove everything, but, but show it's rational and reasonable. Then to show people it works. And then if they come back and they want, then they say, well, how do I know it's true? Then I really am going to even press them, even if they don't want it, to yeah. look at the arguments, because there really are good arguments. I mean, even Alvin Plantinga has got some articles saying 20 or so pretty good proofs for the existence of God. I think it's an article. Yeah. He says, no, none of them just do a slam dunk where every rational person is forced kicking and screaming to believe in God. But he says, you know, cumulatively, these are really a lot. 
Yeah, they're not bad. Is the no, kind of way he bad, often right? Puts and it. I, <laughs> you know what? I think honestly, there are a lot of people who've been so hurt by religion or hurt by mm. stuff that they're just not going to be able to give you. They're not going to give you the time of day. But in a place like Manhattan or places like so much of Australia, this this approach will really bear fruit. It really yeah. will. The modest approach, mm. that leveling the playing field, that being careful, not trying to overdo it. Um, it, it's a combination of things. Also, people come in very different orders. There's no, sure. no, you know, so actually I do think there still is a need for traditional apologetics. So, you know, uh, your books and my books aren't completely irrelevant. I just want you to know that. <laughs> they still could be useful at the right time. <laughs> Indeed. When we started the Center for Public Christianity in Australia, we had this sort of private behind closed doors uh, motto that our mission was to help people see that Christianity isn't as dumb and mean as they thought. And you know, it sounds like it sounds like a low bar. It sounds like a low bar, but actually, no, no, actually, you know, you should have told me I had to start with. I could have saved you about four or five minutes here. That's a great answer to the question you asked me five minutes ago. So, not at all. Um, questions of fairness have come to the fore. Um, so, I want to ask you. A few fairness questions, and and I'm happy for you just to give us signposts to answers, because sure. I know these are entire topics. Um, but things like, it's unfair to say that one historically contingent story, the gospel, could possibly be salvation for everyone when there are so many different stories out there that humanity has come up with. It's unfair, right? Well, now. The bottom line for most of these, but I'll just I'll say it right this way, is I would I, I'd like people to say, what are you believing about human nature, uh, about about life, about human purpose? I mean, what are your faith assumptions that are actually bringing that question about? Um, and um, let me I mean, sorry, I, I know you want me to just signpost. Let me tell you a true story. Do you, do you know who Harvey Kahn is? No, uh, John. John, he, Harvey Kahn was a was a uh, a friend of mine. He was actually a professor at Westminster Seminary the five years I was there. He's the head of the practical theology department. Uh, he's gone now. He's he has died. But he was a missionary to um, he was a Presbyterian missionary to uh, Korea for ten years. He told me this absolutely true story, though it's, I have never been able to find it in any of his writings that when he was trying to do evangelism with prostitutes in Seoul, Korea, in the uh, like early 1960s, he, he did the normal American approach, which was to say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And um, he said, you got to remember, this is a shame and honor culture. Hmm. This is a Confucian culture, more Confucian than China ever was. He said, um, this is 1960, so it's not globalized or anything. And these women had to believe that they were the scum of the earth. And so they would just say, forget it. I don't know. I don't know what you believe. There's no way that God would ever have me. Okay. And he just was getting nowhere. And then he told his story. To, they told it, he said he had this idea because he's an Orthodox Presbyterian. So he, he started speak, working with a group of, of prostitutes. And he said, you know what? I'm... I want you to know, I, I believe in a God who predestines people. He just decides who he's going to save. He just decides on his own, 
as the king of the world, I'm going to save these people. I'm not going to save these people. And as I'm telling you the gospel, if, if you find yourself wanting this, then that's not something you're capable of. That means God's opening your heart. Now he said to my shock, to his shock, he said, he's, he said, uh, this approach, which would never work in Australia or America, had a lot of impact because these were people who believed in a hierarchical world. They did not believe that everybody had needed to have a chance. They, they believed that some classes and some races were terrible people. And they had no problem with the idea that God would, you know, this guy would just damn whole races of people. They had no problem. That, that, that democratic, that everybody's got to have a chance, that everybody's equally important, that every class and every race, uh, that's a Christian idea as Tom Holland proves in his book, Dominion, okay? Uh, and if you believe that God is unfair to not, to not have, uh, in a sense, given absolutely every single person in the history of the world an equal exposure to this, then you, first of all, you've already been Christianized, uh, which means you're actually basing your objection to God on something, an idea you got from the Bible. And uh, what, what Harvey told me is the reason why the, some of these prostitutes became Christians was they said, well, if there is a God, of course he has the right to do things like that. I mean, they lived in a hierarchical, they had no problem at all. And it was the only way they could believe in God, grace, uh, salvation by grace. Hmm. It was the only way they could believe it. So what I try to do now, I, that's kind of long, but what I would do with a friend is, uh, who's not a believer, I would try to say, do you see the degree to which you are basing your objections to God on ideas that came out of the very Bible that you are objecting to? Because the Bible also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. So what you're doing is you're taking some of the Bible and saying, I believe that part, and other parts of the Bible are saying, I don't believe that part. And I said, well, I, I think it's only fair to consider it as a whole. And therefore to say, um, God knows better than we do what is fair. So that, I mean, that's in the end, I, I would say, look, I struggle too. I mean, you have to have a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of sympathy here and to say, mm -hmm. the only thing I know is I, I have seen people in my life that I felt like really deserve to be smashed. And later on, as I, as I grew, I realized, you know, I, back when I was younger, I really didn't realize that those people had this and that and this and that. I said, you know, in the end, only God really knows what is fair. Only God has the authority to give out what is fair. Only God, if he exists, he's the only one with the authority to, to give out what is fair. And he's the only one who knows what is fair. Mm, and I'm factors. not in that position. Mm. I'm just not in that position. Yeah. So I struggle with it. On the other hand, yeah. if there is a God, he would know what is fair. Mm. So you really can't say there can't be an all-knowing, all-wise God who, who, who actually knows more than me about what is fair. See, that's what mm -hmm. they're saying. So what I would do is I would, I could go way back and say, you're assuming all sorts of things out of the Bible, but I could go back a little further back and say, you're actually assuming that there's, there's no such thing as a God who knows something about what people deserve that you don't. And so do you say the same thing about hell, which is the next thing, you know, exactly. that's the next unfair thing. Exactly. Except you could, I think it's easier, John, 
because I would say I think you're finding cool. hell easier. Are yeah, you? I, I see. I see. I see Christian after Christian running away from this idea of hell. Well, now look. Even though I get, I don't know if you've ever seen this online. I get, I get some uh, pushback from, um, uh, you know, from from this. But you know, C.S. Lewis's basic understanding is that hell is something you choose. And you know, it's interesting. I, I read Don Carson. Don is no, you know, Don's. Don's no liberal, okay? <laughs> Indeed not. <laughs> Indeed not. Indeed not. Okay, but uh, but Don, you know, I, I I I tend to read Don's, you know, his uh, his reflections on, you know, he's at, he's got a about two thirds of the McShane reading calendar. He's got those reflections called "The Love of God." Fairly mm -hmm. often, he points out that, uh, like in Revelation, uh, the judgment of God comes down on people, and they still don't repent. The judgment comes down; they still don't repent. Of course, even in even in Luke sixteen, it's a parable, but um, you know the uh, the rich man in 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 hell is not saying "let me out of here." Instead, he's just saying this is unfair. And there's a lot of I think there's a, a there's a lot of um, uh, credence behind the idea that we that if we live forever, in other words, if our souls go on, we have a tendency to keep going in the same direction. And if you really want to, uh, the idea I would rather reign in hell than rule, you know, rule in hell than serve in heaven is, is something that people choose. It's also, by the way, unfair if there is no hell for a lot of people. I mean, I, the reason why I've, I, here's what I would say is that, that 20 years ago, the very idea of a God of judgment and justice just did not fly with secular people, but younger people are much, much less willing to forgive. They feel like that's a lack of justice. My biggest problem right now in pastoring people is that younger people feel like that forgiveness, I'm actually writing a book about it right now, John, if I ever get it done, but that forgiveness is being undermined by modern secular understandings of justice. You're never supposed to forgive somebody who's wronged you because that would be unjust. Hmm. So I'm actually finding that, that the idea of a God of judgment that sends people to hell is not, it's, it's not quite as, um, you know, unpopular as it used to be. That's what makes me say, I do think the idea of hell, if you're able to cast it as something that people choose and, 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 and in a way they, they're there because they continue to choose it. Yeah. Uh, I think there's, I think, I do think there's some, uh, you can get some traction with that. Traditional uh, views, traditional Christian views of sex seem unfair to yeah. the LGBTI community. Have you got any signposts? Yeah. For us? Well, um, I think you 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 might want to don't you want to talk even more broadly about that? It does feel that there's a um, uh, and this is where Ross Douthat agrees, by the way, on this is at this point the the biggest reason why people find cr traditional Christianity unpalatable is because of its attitude towards sex. Yeah, and therefore I do think that going forward. It is not that hard for Christians to, to admit racism, admit injustice of the past in the church. Um, there's an awful lot of things that the Bible says about justice. I know in our country right now, if you talk, if a Christian talks about social justice, you're being tagged as a Marxist. But that's that that's a political uh, battle that probably won't continue. I hope here, but right now it's really a way for 
frankly, for um, uh, supporters of Donald Trump inside the evangelical church to make their case. Um, but the Bible's filled with stuff about justice. So when people say the church has been on the side of injustice, uh, it, you, you repent, you admit where it has been, and then you go to the, what the Bible says and you, you show what great resources the Bible has uh, to be seeking social reform, etc. Sexuality is different. <laughs> um, and it's the, therefore, it's really the, the place where many people believe that because expressing myself sexually is crucial to being an authentic self, therefore, Christianity is essentially a, an enemy of healthy identity. It's, a, it's an enemy of healthy selfhood. And actually, that is the biggest apologetic issue. Oh, Mr. Apologist, public Christianity. I, I do think it's the biggest one we have. It's the, I can see ways forward in almost every other place. This one's the hardest one. I can give you a couple ideas. Yeah. So I'm interested to see if you, can you ever imagine a happy coexistence between the traditional Christian views of sex and the secular vision of sex? Where can there be a happy coexistence, if ever? Well, there might be, I, I, well, first of all, I'll give you my, I'll, secondly, I'll give you some ideas of a way forward, but, but in, in, uh, several years ago, just before the big, our American Supreme court decision, uh, legalizing same sex marriage, I was invited by two people. One was uh, Gabe Lyons of mm -hmm. the Q conference. You may have heard of him. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other one was Andrew Sullivan, who is a gay Catholic. I, mean, I don't know how devout a Catholic, but he's a gay Catholic man who was a big proponent of same-sex marriage. The two of them brought together gay activists and evangelical leaders to ha just have a kind of discussion about just the subject. It was only two weeks before the big, big uh, decision. And what was interesting was there were two gay men there, uh, and I've got a little bit of relationship with one of them that maintained. There were two there who are all about saying, we've got to learn to live together. We've got to realize that just like there's different races and there's different uh, worldviews and different religions, we believe in pluralism. And uh, we, we shouldn't be steamrolling every single religion that has any kind of uh, uh, moral problems with homosexuality. We just can't do that. We, we, we need to learn to live together. The t those two guys, one was Catholic in background. The other one was actually an atheist who was Jewish. But the other seven or eight people who were there said, no way, no way, no way. Uh, we, it's, it's them or us. You know, we either are going to have to, we're going to have to destroy the church or we're going to have to uh, make it illegal for them to talk about homosexuality. They actually said that, make it illegal to speak against it. Um, or we're just not going to, there's just there's no there's no compromise what was interesting who is when we went around and said what well, what's your background andrew another guy named jonathan roush who was there um who works for the brookings institute i think anyway john is atheist gay uh jewish uh, andrew is, is a catholic and they were the ones saying we can live together the other six or seven if i remember correctly all had come up in evangelical churches hmm. and they'd really been mistreated 
really badly. I, I, I heard all of their, their um, testimonies, you might say, and they were just yeah. really badly mistreated. And they're the ones who are out for no compromise. Mm. Yes. Mm. And I, so I keep thinking it's almost like it's, I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it, it, it could be that as time goes on, there will be a calming down. Um, I think, I think the idea that you can, the one advantage here, of course, is that we're not there. The gay activists are not really only against evangelical Christians. They're also against Muslims and Orthodox Jews and, uh, and Hindus and a whole lot of other people. And I do think that they're going to have, I think hopefully reality will bring them down to the idea, you know, where there, there'll have to be some kind of compromise. Yeah. But the other thing just to say quickly is when I have spoken to people, even though they, they smile at me and they say, that was really clever, but I don't buy it. But nevertheless, they at least smile is I try to say, well, Christianity, two things, Christianity, first of all, um, has believes in practicing gender diversity in relationships. So in uh, this is my story in right now in California, if you are going to move your business for, if you have more than a certain size business with a certain number of employees, and if you decide you're going to go public and be uh, you stock trade in public, you have to have at least one woman on your board of directors. So in other words, they don't want all male boards of directors. I said, now, why would that be? So you ask the person, why do you think it's that crucial to have a woman on a board of directors of a, you know, why is it illegal to have only men on a, on a, you know, a, a publicly traded company? And they usually say, well, the female, okay, so well then why wouldn't it, why can't it be illegal to say we don't want a family or marriage with, without a woman? What'll be wrong with that? Okay, so that's the, and it's, in some ways, Christianity is is practicing a kind of level of diversity that our culture doesn't want to admit is necessary. The second, now you know what I'm doing there, John. I'm using their own, you know, it's called subversive fulfillment. You're using the person's narrative against them. It's a little bit of like a judo move. The other thing, though, is consent. Judo means the gentle way. It's the gentle way. Yes. The other thing would be consent, and that is the idea of no sex outside of marriage. Mm. Um, and I say, uh, to my surprise, I can pull out three or four articles in the New York Times in the last two years where women felt that um, just giving consent at the moment. They, what they said was at the moment, my, this guy was saying, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I take off this? Can I un unhook this? Can I do this? And they said, yes, 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 yes. And then a month later or even a few weeks later, uh, this guy didn't show me any, you know, I thought we were going to have a relationship and he just, you know, he just used me and he said, I want to take my consent back. And I know I can't do that. I know I can't charge that man now under our current laws with non-consensual sex. And yet I feel it was, hmm. and I said, we need to reconfigure. And this one woman was writing and talking to her girlfriends about the fact that I feel like consent has to be more more than just at the moment it's got to be more than physical it's got to be whole life consent and they were just laughing at her and i'm reading this thing and saying uh i i really think you can make a case and i think women are going to be the ones who are going to believe this that consent can't be just momentary and it can't just be physical
and that we could make the case also, by the way, the Christianity, uh, you know, uh, Kyle Harper's book, um, from shame to sin, uh, on how Christianity changed, uh, the, you know, the old classical Roman world when it came to sexuality makes the case that the very idea of, uh, that consensual sex was wrong. Uh, non-consensual sex was, it was a sin, was a very Christian idea. Yeah. He says the ancient people believed there was such a thing as rape, of course, mm. which is really violent. But he says the reality was that any man uh, of a higher, you know, class could actually have sex with almost anybody he wanted. Mm. And there was really no way to say no. And by modern standards, there's all kinds of rape happening. And the reason why we have a modern standards is because of Christianity. Hmm. So I, I feel like the consent and the diversity are two, uh, you might say, they're weak spots in the dragon. You know, if, you know, if, you're bar, you know if, you're, if you're trying to find a place in the dragon scales where there's, there's a sensitivity. Um, and I actually could say Christianity has a view of consent and of diversity that I think will serve you better than the than the than the the the, uh, the secular version i've actually had people say you know what they smile they think it's clever they say that's interesting it's still just almost you know i i don't know it's it's a long way from yeah. being a a really strong argument but anyway i would say to anybody listening to this that's a that's that, that's how you could develop that yeah if you can bear it i i have a uh, a few questions about the church <laughs> And then I'll, I want to end with two uh, more personal questions. I know you love the church. Um, you spent so much of your time building up not just one church, but a church planting movement. Um, can you explain, especially to um, my British and Australian listeners, what the word evangelical means in America? Because it seems to have a different flavor from, I'm happy to call myself an evangelical in the British tradition. But what does it mean in America? And and I guess I want to ask, does that terminology still seem useful, survivable? Well, as a, a person that got converted through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the 19, you know, basically 1970, that's me. And as Mark Knoll in one of his very first books called From Faith to Criticism, he points out that because American uh, evangelicalism, and I'm going to I'm going to get back to this word in a second, uh, became fundamentalist when when the evangelicals were essentially kicked out of all the mainline denominations. Um, and by the way, including the Episcopal Church to a great degree. I mean, I the thing that did not happen in America. And there's, I've been told all kinds of reasons that I'm not sure I, I know enough to be sure of. But the reason why you really didn't develop a low church evangelical wing in America, the way you did in Australia and in, and in the UK and other places in the world, you know, low church, meaning, you know, not necessarily investments and, and, mm. and, and uh, very biblical and, uh, you know, very J.I. Packerish and John Stottish yep. and that just, yep. that never happened. There was no Episcopal movement like that in America. I've, I've been given a bunch of reasons why, for, for who knows why. But because of that, um, because America became more fundamentalist, 
they the in other words the, the evangelicals became anti-intellectual they abandoned all the all the main um institutions all the denominational institutions and uh, mark Knoll points out that there was almost from the time j gresham machen died you know who wrote books like the origin of paul's religion and the virgin birth of christ until bill lane william lane brought out a new international commentary on mark in the in the mid 70s there was basically about a 40-year period in which there wasn't a, a single American evangelical that produced any kind of scholarship, any kind of first-rank scholarship at, at all. Hmm. You know, all of the 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 early NI, you know, new international commentaries were South African or British or Australian. You know, Leon Morris, you know, hmm. put them all out and all that. It's almost like the the you might say the intellectual world of American evangelicals just went away. Um, and the reason why I resonate to you, John, and every is because when you became a Christian in 1970, who did you read if you were an American and you were in college, you read John Stott, I Howard Marshall, uh, you know, J.I. Packer, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, you know, it was nothing but C.S. Lewis. You read nothing but British people. I mean, I actually thought that uh, that I had accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. I didn't realize, you know, excuse me, I'm sorry. So I always thought of Jesus Christ as my savior with a you. It was of course yeah. everybody else in America was, there is no you there. Yeah. So anyway, um, the uh, what what that really meant was I did have, there, there was a, uh, a very small number of Americans that had an understanding of evangelical as not being fundamentalist. Because fundamentalist is not only moralistic, it's anti-intellectual and very, very anti-elitist. Very, very anti-scholarship, very um, populist, almost almost um, angry about education. And um, the um, and if you want to understand this, you got to read a book which most of your readers have never read. Why should they? And that is Nathan O'Hatch, 1989, The Democratization of American Christianity. You've got to read that book. That explains it. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll put story. that in the show notes for sure. Well, it's a long story, and it's not—it's not, it's not a—I mean, it's not a page turner. It's just great scholarship. It's definitely mm -hmm. a classic, but it really shows that the American democratic ethos, in a sense, took over evangelicalism, and it was a way for it to spread. Um. I'll just tell you real quick that it, when the front, we had this massive frontier, I mean, in a way, Australia never, Australia stayed near the coasts, you know, and yeah. stayed in the city. There was a very good reason for that. Yeah, I know, because if there's this thing called a desert anyway, but anyway, America, America was just going this way, going, you know, from mm -hmm. east to west. And as it pushed west, uh, somebody becomes a Christian and wants to go into ministry the Congregationalists, the Episcopalians, and the Presbyterians would send that guy back to the East Coast for seven years of, of liberal arts education and, and theological training. The Methodists and the Baptists would just lay hands on them and say, you go preach. So the Methodists and the Baptists became 20, 30 times bigger than the, than the, uh, the Presbyterians and Episcopalians. But also uh, beyond them created, you know, Pentecostalism came out of it and and it created a, a, a largely American evangelical ethos that was very wedded to popular culture, very God and country flag waving, 
uh, frankly, I would call it gender exaggerating. In other words, it tended to adopt the gender stereotypes and never question them. It was a uh, very, very, very anti-education, even anti-science. It was anti, anti-elites. And it's a lot stronger than the evangelical. Weirdly, it's much bigger. See, here's the thing. It's, it, it worked and it didn't work. Do you see that? Why do you think yeah. in the UK and, you know, in Canada and Australia, why was evangelicalism so much smaller? Because it didn't make that move. In fact, mm. Nathan Hatch talks about the fact that the Methodists in the UK did not allow what, what Francis Asbury was allowing amongst the Methodists in the United States. They just, they just they wanted, they wanted, they were Europeans, they wanted more control, they wanted more quality control. And they were just alarmed by the, the craziness of so many of the Methodist evangelists. They had all, they were out there winning souls for Christ, but they were also, they were also, uh, you know, selling, selling quack medicine cures and all sorts of other things. And it's, it's, so it worked in America and yet it didn't work. Yeah. And so we are much more of a, uh, a um, it, evangelicals here are much more prone to conspiracy theories, uh, much more moralistic, I think, in many ways, certainly much more um, uh, wrapped in the American flag in bad ways. And so is the word, is the word itself still useful? You, you well, still committed to calling yourself evangelical? If we can get back the word fundamentalist, I hear, you know, the Bevington Four, the idea that uh, an evangelical is someone who believes in the full authority of the Bible, the necessity of conversion, salvation through the substitutionary atonement. I mean, well, I wouldn't say that. The atoning work of Christ, not your good works, and, you know, sharing your faith through mission. The trouble with that very good, right theological definition of evangelicalism is it, it flattens the differences between fundamentalism. Uh, which has the marks we've been talking about, anti-intellectual, anti-institutional, moralistic, dualistic, um, individualistic, deeply enculturated. And you see, those that the, the people who've been fighting against that, uh, which would be what we would call evangelicals and have tried to fight against that, and the people who give into those social traits are fundamentalists. If you could get back that distinction, but for a couple of reasons why I'm not sure it's going to work, because first of all, the news media has kind of gotten rid of the word fundamentalist mm. and just uses the word evangelicals. And so lumps us all together. Um, and then secondly, I think the fund, the, the real fundamentals, are, they're, they're going to years ago, the Bob Jones universities and the Dallas seminaries in America, they embraced the term. But I don't think anybody's going to embrace that term anymore. And so it's their way of kind of bringing us all down together. I think. Uh, but progressives don't want to believe there's a difference between eventual no. and, no. and fundamentalists. No. They don't want to believe that. Mm. And the fundamentalists don't want to believe that either. Because in other words, if you're not with us, if you're not, a fun, you know, they wouldn't use the term. The fundamentalists would say, if you're not with us, then you're really just a liberal. And so there's a lot of powerful people who don't want to believe that the old John Stott, J.I. Packer, Billy Graham, Carl Henry, Lausanne, Hmm. you know, that that in the English speaking world, that that uh, 
formulation really exists, you know? So I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. The, here's the problem, John, you know, that there's just big parts of the rest of the non-Western world that still use the word. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder whether white Westerners ought to say, okay, we're done using that word when so many other people use it. Uh, so I'm not really sure, but I do think that the, um, uh, if we could get that back, that, that difference between maybe use different words, but if we get back that difference between fundamentalist and, and evangelical, then I think that would be an important distinction to make. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago that the church has historically been at the forefront of justice and equality, but now those things are often clubs wielded against the church. So my, my question is, how do you think the church can navigate so-called wokeness culture? And I'm pretty sure using the word wokeness in that pejorative sense isn't going to help. But how, how does the church navigate these very strange times we're in? Well, the hard part is, I think, you, yeah, the answer is, is that you try to, uh, we do need to go back and look at biblical justice. Um, <clears throat> a year and a right after my if you want to bring this up i can talk to you briefly about it but right after my cancer diagnosis i um john everybody was sure when you have pancreatic cancer everybody's sure that you've got weeks to live yeah and it turned out i did i had more than that to live it, nobody bothered me for a while <laughs> nobody asked me to do a podcast no i'm sorry <clears throat> everybody just sort of let me go i'd never experienced anything like it and i spent an awful lot of time studying what the Bible said about justice and hmm. discovering and looking into the issue of collective responsibility. And, and, and there's just, it's rich. I, I think if, if Christians, I kind of said this before, three things, number one, Christians do have to not in any way uh, airbrush or whitewash their past. So we have to be completely honest about, egregious injustices, past or present. Number two, we need to really do a better job of preaching justice in a way that's not moralistic. Uh, and I know I'm opening a big can of worms here, but I would just say, I hear a lot of good young evangelicals trying to preach justice, but it, it, it can come across at the end like a kind of like a moralistic sermon. In the end saying that we just need to go out there and help the poor and really care about justice. And in the end, Okay, how does grace work? How is that gospel? In what way is that? I do think there definitely are ways to do this, by the way. I know there are ways to do it. But I do think that younger evangelicals are going to have to figure out a way of talking about justice that doesn't end up being another moralistic guilt trip. Yeah. But number three, there is an overwokeness. Um, I'm not saying you've got to read the New York Times to find it. But basically, in the last four or five months, the New York Times is really backtracking over the way so many of its younger authors and journalists were writing the year of the George Floyd death and all the uh, the um, uh, all of the you know, the demonstrations and the rioting, where they were they were saying things like, and I saw it, they were saying things like, the idea of crime is a racist, mm -hmm. capitalist idea. Okay, which is kind of what Marx did believe. If you were a criminal, it was society made you that. Uh, or things like th that punctuality is being white. Good grades yeah. are being white. We need to get rid of standardized tests for doctors. 
because only white people pass them. And now what's happening in the last four or five months, the New York Times is actually starting to walk that stuff back enormously. And they're also saying, because there is a backlash against it, a lot of it was very over the top. Um, and uh, I do think that there, there are going, there's going to be some reckoning. Um, and maybe, you know, in America, there was a very, very, very major movement to uh, cut police departments in half. Yeah. And they all that's being walked mm. back. It's all being yeah. walked back by, and by, by the way, by generally speaking, by African-American mayors now. Uh, who are who are just hearing from their own people saying, are you crazy? Anyway, so um, I, I feel like in a way, instead of going after the most egregious overreactions by the, the, the progressive left and saying, ha, see how stupid that is, let, let them work it out. They're, they're going to walk a lot of it back. We should be thinking about ourselves. We should yeah. be admitting where we were compliant with, uh, you know, we were uh, you know, complicit with a uh, with injustice, and we need to we need to figure out ways of preaching what the Bible says about justice in a in a grace and gospel oriented way. So, do you think there also needs to be a walking back on the evangelical side of its anti wokeness, its anti critical race theory, its yeah. anti social justice warrior rhetoric? Yeah. Yes, because in fact, it, see, we're being sucked into the, uh, the the conservative news media because it is it's it's it is a it's a form of pornography. In other words, look at this incredibly stupid thing that this person said. This woke person said this unbelievable, and boy, there's a lot of them. Uh, there was a, just this last week, uh, there was a um, article in the New York Times. It was kind of end of the year editorial. And the editorial said, um, uh, who's afraid of critical race theory? And the man who's very much a liberal said, on the one hand, the what the right wing is doing is they're trying to find every single stupid thing that people have said on the left and what what people said in order to say we don't have to talk about racism as a problem anymore yeah but then he said the reality is however that he felt like the news media was willing to take a lot of young uh woke people who were saying crazy things over the last year or two that were really outrageous were really wrong um, and and have actually, in a sense, undermined the progressive movement because they have themselves platform people who were just angry, um, who were saying uh, extraordinarily unkind things, things that actually were, in a sense, anti-white racism. He even admitted that that was happening. And he says, now we've damaged ourselves because you've given conservatives all this ammunition. I think Christians ought to put the ammunition down. It's just, that's just not, that's just not how we do it. We're, we're supposed to be lifting up another way of going. And I'm not sure just simply saying we don't have a race problem, like the conservatives are saying in America or the left, which is almost a hopeless feeling like there's no way out because everything in society is hopelessly racist and even it's unconsciously so. And I think those two groups are not, we, we definitely are looking at, at putting out there a, a different way. And you know what, even though I'm not a Pentecostal, John, Pentecostal churches are the most multi-ethnic human organizations in the history of the world. And I do believe eventually evangelicalism will be that too. And I think mm -hmm. that's going to be, that's going to create credibility for talking about justice.
One final question about the church, and then I want to end on two very quick personal questions. Well, although mm-hmm. the quickness is up to sure. you in your answers. Um, Christianity seems like yesterday's story for, for many people that, that you and I connect with um, out there in the world. But can you imagine there will ever be a Christian renaissance or even revival? Yeah, because, for, you know, monasticism, who would have thought that up? I mean, you know, I mean, you monasticism was, and I know a lot of people are thinking monasticism, you know, retreat. John knows, and, oh, oh, listeners, John knows the monastics were the missionaries. They're the mm-hmm. people who won Europe. Mm-hmm. They're the reason why at least most of you in Australia are, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the monks went up there and they, it was brilliant. They didn't just show up and preach. They created communities. Mm. They created hospitals, you know, schools, yeah, hospitals, poverty programs, farms. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's unbelievable. So the monastic movement, which also was a renewal movement, uh, because Christendom comes along and everybody suddenly becomes a Christian. Instead of 10% of the population being Christian, suddenly everybody's a Christian. And the monastic movement was partly a renewal movement to get back to real Christianity. It was also a missionary movement. Who would have thought that up? Who would have thought the Reformation up exactly? Who would have thought the Great Awakening up? I mean, I put it this way, everything God, every new thing God does is unprecedented until it's not. <laughs> and I, so I can actually imagine uh, reformations and renewals, but my guess is a really good one is going to be something I, you and I can't actually imagine exactly right now. But I, I still, I can even imagine some, so sure, sure. Because, you know, look, Jesus, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That There's no expiration date on that offer. <laughs> yeah. Two quick personal questions. Um, how important are habits? You know, sort of spiritual disciplines is what they're often called. Um, both in finding faith, but also maintaining faith. And if, and, and if I may, can I ask you what are your most precious spiritual habits? I will give you the, in my late, my early fifties, um, I actually had thyroid cancer and, uh, it was a, um, uh, 20 years ago. And so there was a, uh, a time there where I had, uh, a real renewal of my own spiritual life and prayer life. And it surrounded three things. I mean, in other words, there were three habits, you might say. The one habit was actually having prayer and Bible reading more than once a day. Uh, daily office sounds awfully Anglican, I know. So, but in other words, morning and evening prayer mm-hmm. as opposed or midday prayer, whatever. But in other words, not just once. Just, I just needed it to frame me myself up. So I was going to read four chapters a day in the Bible, then read three in the morning and one at night or something like that. It was much better than reading all four in the morning. Number one. Number two, immersion in the Psalms. I know that's Book of Common Prayer too. But actually, um, even though I'm Presbyterian, I do the, um, ever since the the 50s, I mean, ever since my my, my 50s, I have done, not perfectly, of course, but I've basically done the uh, Book of Common Prayer uh, all the Psalms in a, in a month, hmm. uh, at least read through them or prayed through them yeah. once a month, uh, immersion in the Psalms for various reasons. The, the third thing is <clears throat> John Owen, 
has two books, Mortification of Sin and Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. He basically believes that sanctification has, you might say, a downstroke and an upstroke. The downstroke is mortification. That's not so much repentance for what you have done wrong. It's recognizing the besetting, the besetting sins of your heart that 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 create that basically trigger actual sins. Uh, in other words, there 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 are particular approaches of self. There's self pity, selfishness. In other words, besetting sins are more like idols of the heart rather than actual, um, you know, an idol of approval, an, an idol of uh, performance, an idol of uh, success, or an idol of power. They're, they're more like um, the, the, the way your heart sinfully, a sinful stance of your heart that, that issue in particular sins. And mortification is recognizing those and finding ways of thinking about Jesus Christ in a way that actually uh, shrinks those. In other words, actually having a monthly or a weekly time in which you actually look at the your, your, your four or five or six most besetting sins. Actually, I used to have four, and then some, Kathy knows, uh, 10 years ago, I, it was it got so bad, I just hated getting older. And she said, I think, I think it's time See, that hatred of getting older actually does lead to certain sins. And it's mm. definitely is a, an unwillingness to admit things about it's it's it is definitely a, a, an unwillingness to accept that God is and not my health and my strength is my real hope. And so I I that's what I mean by I graduated that up as to one of the things that at least every month I looked at, repented of, sought God's help for found bible verses that helped me so that's mortification the other part of the down that's the downstroke the other upstroke is thinking about jesus christ till his beauty and his glory comes through owen is amazing at that he says look it's not enough just to say uh jesus is the um uh jesus was exalted you know to the right hand of the father he says that's a that's a fact but he says doesn't if you love him aren't you excited that the one that you love and who got so much rejection has got that kind of honor now? He, he, he'll say, meditate on that so that you actually, it draws your heart out. Don't just say, oh yeah, he's ascended the right hand of the father. Hmm. He said, you know, you know, recently my youngest son just got a pr big promotion and he is now uh, works for the city of New York and he is the deputy director of all urban planning in the borough of Queens. And you, if you, I don't know, John. I don't know where your your, your kids are and all this. So, if the when one of my kids gets honored, boy, because I love him, yeah, boy, do I get excited about that. It's just mm -hmm. incredible. And then I'm thinking, mm -hmm. wait a minute, if I'm if I if I have if I'm having these two or three really great days just because I found <laughs> out that Jonathan got this promotion, here's John Owen saying, why aren't you filled with joy over the promotion that Jesus got? You know, hmm. so. About once a month, I try to take a couple of hours, usually on a Saturday morning, where I go back over my, my you know, do mortification and you might say contemplation of God's glory, Jesus glory in particular, and just try to go deeper. So a monthly retreat, uh, a, uh, you know, morning and evening going through the Psalms and just sticking with that no matter how 
horrible you feel. Hmm. That's the main thing. Just yeah. it doesn't matter. Just don't stop it. Don't hmm. stop it because you'll get the feelings back if you yeah. don't give up. But if you give yeah. up, then there's nothing. Tim, earlier this year, um, I watched my best friend of 40 years uh, die in my lounge room after five months of palliative care. Um, he was really strong in the Lord to his final breath. Um, but I admit it, it has really hit me. <laughs> now, it's the frailty of things that I just find so disturbing um, to, to watch my mate go down. So I want to ask you, if you don't mind, um, tell us how you're journeying spiritually with stage four cancer. And I'm not looking for my own private therapy session with Tim Keller here. Um, I'm sure my listeners just want to know, how, how does one walk through the darkness? What kind of cancer did your friend have? It was a um, squamous cell carcinoma that yep. presented in the jaw yeah. and then took, took over his head. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, the horrible thing about when you get cancer, you, 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 you know, you become an expert. Kathy says there's two ways to become an officer. One was you go to you go to military school and you get commissioned. The other is what she called field field promotions. Hmm. In other yeah. words, in the in the midst of battle, you can become a, go from a from an enlisted man to being an officer just yeah. because of your experience. And I, what happens is if you actually have cancer, it's like you're kind of a, a cancer doctor. Uh, yeah. Um, John Newton, Goodloe Church Anglican, had Kathy for years has read his Cardiphonia, you know, his utterance of the heart almost daily. Uh, you know, I always said, you got to get another pastor besides me. I mean, if she, I've always, I've, for 45 years, I was her only pastor. There's a, there's a problem with that. I don't know how you worked that out with your, but anyway. But, um, uh, and so John Newton is her, is her other pastor. He's got a great place where he talks about um, an undue attachment to the things of time. Hmm. And that's it. Uh, the minute we found out that I had pancreatic cancer, which is not the same as thyroid cancer, which I had 20 years ago when they immediately said, oh, we can treat this. Uh, the first time I talked to my doctor uh, about the pancreatic cancer, he says, you're going to die of this. We don't have any way really of, uh, of uh, uh, curing this. Um, though he's backtracked and said, look, the reality is there, there have been remissions and things that we can't explain but the fact is that you need to assume that this is going to take you out and so we are and what that has done to both of us is it has just shown us uh that we were living in a veil of illusion that we would live forever we actually really were everybody says no 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 no, no. but you you are you are i mean that you probably come close by watching a friend die like that um it's not the same as being told you're going to die of cancer. And yet you've, you've, you're having a near death experience because what happens is you something, the, the things of the earth grow strangely dim. And when that happens, you say, gosh, God isn't really enough for me. I, I really don't have enough of a grip on God to get through the day. I was really living off of a, 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 a deep, a deep denial of my, morta my mortality. 
and a belief that the things of this world are really the things that are going to satisfy me. But they never really have. And yet I keep going back and keep going back. So um, the uh, uh, there are there are places like there's a place in Tolkien, you know, where Sam is falling asleep after Frodo. They're on their way to Mount Doom. And at one point he looks up and he sees a star twinkling. It's a very famous place where he says, uh, uh, suddenly, um, you know, cold and clear like a shaft, the realization pierced him that uh, the shadow, you know, the evil of this world is a passing thing. There's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And he immediately just fell into a deep, untroubled sleep. And what happens is, is that the, the uh, having cancer and, and which means no longer the things that you really were relying on for your soul's repose. They just don't do it anymore. It's God or nothing. And when you go to him, guess what? He, there, there was, there's a, there, there's a communion with God which is available. That at a level that you just never, you just never felt the need to push through to find. And when you, when you do, and you push through, you find that it's there. There is not only enough for you to to get through the day, but then actually the things around you are. You, you, you recognize as greater gifts than, than you were looking at them as before. In other words, in some ways, I'm happier than I used to be. That sounds very weird to say. It does. In some ways, you know, uh, you're, you, I can enjoy the, the water, the sun, the, you know, a, a good meal, uh, especially since so often I'm sick and I can't enjoy a good meal. So when I do enjoy the good meal and, and, and therefore I would just say that, uh, it's a, um, it's good when you get rattled like that. By the way, seven years ago, I lost my best friend to cancer eight years ago. And a little bit of that already was getting through. I, I think I was getting more prepared for this. Hmm. But I know what you're talking about. It just, it just really, uh, you know, when Tolkien, when Lewis, C.S. Lewis died, even though they'd been a little estranged, J.R.R. Tolkien said every time a, a, a friend dies, it's like somebody cutting off a branch. If you're a tree, it's like somebody cutting off a branch. He says, but this one felt like a blow to the root. Hmm. And I do think that when a really good friend dies, you just get shaken up. So make, make, uh, make good use of it, brother. Hmm. No, really make, make good use of it. And, hmm. and say there's a, there's a level of communion with God that uh, is available that you really just have never been, I don't know, motivated enough to find. I think that's right. So. Yeah, I think part of my problem was I just went into pastor mode, friend mode, nurse yeah. mode, you know, morphine expert mode. And uh, right, you're thinking of him. Yeah. And yeah. Also, of course, I've got a, my wife and I go back and forth on this too, because she's, she's in the pastor mode, basically. Yeah. She's in the care yeah. mode. But the reality, of course, is you're suffering too. Hmm. Um, and Although I wanted this question to be about you, though. No, no, no. <laughs> well, you're nothing. suffering too because because you're left behind. Yeah, and um, uh, that's a that's the unique kind of suffering that the actual uh, sick person isn't going to have. Yeah, and doesn't have to deal with. Yeah. So you may have already answered my last question, so we can either just take it as read. Um, 
But I was going to ask, what for you remains the most compelling thing about the Christian faith? Oh, well, you know, I think the most compelling thing is Jesus himself. I mean, just the person of Christ. And I know from your own books, I, I think you've, you, you've, you've, your writings have been a great service to the church, John. I do think probably the ones that have had the most, that I, I turn back to the most, are your, uh, you know, your essentially depictions of Jesus, mm. your, your expositions of who Jesus is. Mm. Um, however, there are two ideas that I feel like are the most revolutionary because people don't know them. One is you're saved by faith alone, but not by faith, which remains alone. Mm -hmm. And the other is the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. Mm. See, though, those two things I find most Christians do understand the beauty of, of Jesus, but uh, an awful lot of Christians don't understand grace alone. They're still kind of in a works righteousness. And secondly, that, that balance about the kingdom of God being already, but not yet. You, I have to say, you've got a Pentecostalism that says the kingdom of God is already, yep. you know, everything will be fine if you just believe enough. And then you've got another kind of Christianity is the kingdom of God is not yet. In fact, it's not here at all. In fact, you don't expect any big things happening. In fact, you know, just, you you know, otherwise, I honestly, I, I, I believe those two ideas are really worth a lot of uh, exposition. Because not, I'm not sure they're the most compelling ideas of the Christian faith, but the, the, you might say they're the two uh, biggest secrets <laughs> yeah. that people don't seem to recognize of the Christian faith are the two I like to hit on the most. Tim Keller, you've been extremely generous uh, with your time. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much. And I think of you and pray for you, uh, though we don't, you know, <laughs> we never chat. Um uh, but you're certainly in, in my mind and a lot of people's minds. We will continue to pray. Yeah, uh, I please do. I mean, I, uh, when my work's done, that'll be it. Yeah. But it's, it is interesting. I mean, it has been 19 months since I was diagnosed, which my doctors say is um, extraordinary. And, uh, but on the other hand is no cancer. It could just turn around tomorrow and suddenly you're gone. But uh, and I'm I'm glad to live like that. I, I mean, I'm in, I'm at a good spot where I say I actually might have years left. On the other hand, I might not at all. And it's really important for me to live with a certain amount of hope um, both ways. So I've got absolute hope in Christ. But I've also got the possibility that God might say, yeah, you know, I got some surprises up my sleeve before I take <laughs> you. And that's okay. kind of nice to have it both ways. So in a way, I'm, I'm in a. I'm in a win-win situation, John. <laughs> Lovely. Tim Keller, thank you so much. An Undeceptions podcast.